Maybe I should have you greet again. That might... <clears throat> Amen. Has anyone ever been to Athens before? Been, raise your hand if you've been to Athens, Greece. I just want to see those hands. Well, great. The children are leaving. I am, I'm getting the signal. I see it thanks, Denise. And there goes an amazing mom taking children with her to tell, help disciple them. Thank you, moms. These two moms are, oh, there, go, there goes Levi. Whose son is that who's running like that in church, Jacob? Do you know that boy? Well, I'm glad you went to Athens, Greece. I join you. I've been in and through Athens, Greece many, many years ago. But today we're all going to go to Athens, Greece in Acts chapter 17. And I would invite you to look to Acts chapter 17 with me this morning as we go there. But I need to tell you that today I have nothing to say that's trendy. Nothing catchy, nothing culturally attractive, or Instagram or Twitter worthy. In fact, I have something to say that's rather simple um, and dangerous and incredibly hopeful. This is all I have to say, really. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Would you say that with me? In Him, we live and move and have our being. Now when you hear that, that kind of sounds like something that might be trendent, trending on some inspirational social media feed, something that anyone might say, who thinks that there's a big force at work out there, but they're not sure what or who that force might be. Much of the world holds that view, actually, of the force of life. Not sure who or what force in the world is to be reckoned with. And if that sounds like a trending social media celebrity promoting spirituality type of post, well, you would be right. Because those words actually originated from a secular Greek poet named Epimenides in 650 B.C. He was a poet-lyricist, and in 650 B.C., the poet-lyricists in Greece were the social media celebrities of their day. They would send out these little quotes from poetry, and, and people would follow them. They'd in our terminology, they'd click the follow button. And they would have this following of people, and he was one of them. This poem comes from, this quote comes from a poem about the sky god, Zeus. A god who was very far away and uninterested in really caring about people. The man we know as Apostle Paul takes these words and he uses them to point to a very present hope from a very present God that the Easter people 
worship. So we continue our series on the Easter people from Acts chapter 17. And the only way to really do that today well is to look at the whole passage. And it's a big one, so just kind of strap yourself in and let's just see what the Scripture says. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. It's really the council of the Areopagus. And by the way, they met in the temple of the God of war. And he said this, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps, perhaps, maybe, reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. Could you say that with me? Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, hmm, we want to hear again on the subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. When I was a kid, I used to remember those kaleidoscope tubes. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about when I say kaleidoscope tubes, right? So, do they even still exist? They do. Well, the good news, they do. I brought one with me today. Right? So, these things are cool. If you've never, has anyone never played with one of these? Raise your. This is yours. You're going to play with it today. All right? So, here they are. Man, you look up in there. See, you know what's really great about this? Even a colorblind guy. Right? No, the red greens in this, eh. But the yellows, man, and the blues, and oh, there's a yellow right there. There you go. You know, you just keep twisting it and keep turning. Wow, you guys look different right now. So, and these things were so amazing to me as a child, even a colorblind child, because they 
created these vibrant colors and these awesome shapes. Most of these in here are like triangles. Those great images, endless possibilities of beauty, at least for a kid, it seemed like there were these endless possibilities of beauty. Just all you had to do was hold it up to the light and turn it and look through it. There you go. That's your kaleidoscope. And what they did was they simply brought into focus a different way of looking at the world. We all have a way of looking at the world. We call that our worldview. Somewhat an overused term, really. But it basically means this. It's a person's thinking and understanding of the world and their being in the world. How a person makes sense of reality. Really, how they think the world works. And often we're unaware of the impact of the way we see the world on our lives. It's like a giant kaleidoscope. Something that we adjust to make sense of reality But why is that important as we think about being Easter people, the resurrection of Jesus? Why is that so important? Well, imagine living in a world where your faith doesn't matter. Where your view of God is just another idea in the marketplace. Not welcomed, maybe. Can you imagine that? Now imagine those who mock your faith, who have nothing to do with your faith, want nothing to do with your faith. But imagine them this way, not as an enemy, but imagine them as someone searching, as someone hungry. Well, that's where Paul is. He's among the people in his world who are mocking him. Resurrection, it says that many sneered. But he gives us a clue about making sense in how the world works that flips every other assumption on its head. In Him, we live and we move and we have our being. Remember these words I shared recently from N.T. Wright? He said, the resurrection brings its own worldview. If you're going to understand the way things are, you start with this and you work your way out. Not with the way I want it to be or even as it is, but I start with what God is doing and has done and I work my way out. So Paul engages the worldview keepers of his day, the elite carriers of the knowledge of the way the world works, but here was the problem. They were wrong. Their world and their worldview was rooted in the material, the philosophical, the intellectual, for their day to the scientific. It was rooted in the potential of man alone, and that is all needed and good. And I would even say part of that is all part of the natural revelation of God. But all of that only takes you so far. 
What is needed is more than what we can observe. What is needed is more than what we can create in ourselves. What is needed is truth beyond our ability and even perhaps beyond our imagination. We just read, he has given proof by raising Jesus from the dead. I don't know about you, but that's beyond my imagination. And yet, they sneered. Not surprising, really. Because, you see, when they thought of God or gods like Zeus or anyone else, they had a very specific idea about what they wanted their gods to be like. They had a specific place for gods in their view. They held a specific place with a specific purpose. And this is a generalization, so forgive me of that, but... Their view is probably very similar to maybe one of the most popular views of what and who God is in and out of the church, but really in the church. Christian Smith calls it moral therapeutic deism. And the God of moral therapeutic deism is described this way. Number one, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good. And so God's job is to make us happy and help us feel good. And secondly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when we need help. So God, you are wonderful. You are wonderful. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but stay in your lane, God. Stay in your lane. I I don't want you to interfere with the life I'm carving out. And that's kind of the same kind of God in Paul's day for these philosophers and folks on top of that hill. Then Paul helps them and he helps us see that when Jesus rose from the dead, which is one of the most verifiable historical realities ever, but when that happened, the way the world works was reordered. God isn't just a nice God who wants us to be happy. Now, that's the God we kind of like. We kind of want him to be nice and you know, like, almost be like a grandpa kind of guy. Um, however, he's not just a nice God. He's a loving God who doesn't want us to just be happy. But he wants our world and us to be different. South brother James Custer puts it. The risen life of Jesus is no mere abstract idea, but a concrete reality. This is shocking, terrifying, and alarming because it manifests itself in spirit-filled lives of people which are unpredictable, risky, and reverse the ways of the world. A spirit-filled life, people, Easter people, reminds us that life does, does emerge from death, that joy can be found in sorrow, and that a life given away is a life given back. Wow. Man, that's shocking. But maybe it's shocking and it's terrifying and it's alarming for one reason, because God is now in the center, not me. And maybe it's unpredictable and risky and reverses the ways of the world, Because now we can and we must live differently than according to the values and the powers and the ways of the world. 
to understand that more, there's a great book on the lion or the lamb and the dragon. The way of the lamb and the way of the dragon. Get that book and read it. But what Paul does is he uses the language of the ancient poet to bring this home. What a great description of what it means to actually believe in God and the fact that he rose from the dead. What a great description. In him we live and move and have our being. What a great description of Easter people. Because now it is God who is in the center, not man. And a new worldview, a whole new worldview takes place. But what does that mean? If the way the world works has been changed with the living God active in the world, what does it mean? It means this, our world has been reordered, therefore our lives are to be reordered. Resurrection reorients our worldview. It reorients the way we do life. Isn't this the real question? Listen to this question. What in this busted world does Resurrection Sunday now actually do? What does it actually mean on the hard, ordinary days after we stop greeting one another, He is risen? Isn't that the real question of all this? Isn't it the real question? What does any of this really mean? What does it matter? Lan von Skamp asked that question. And she answered, The resurrection of Jesus begins the revolution of this world, which means resurrection changes a life's direction. Resurrection reorients. Resurrection reorients the hurt of this world in a different direction. Resurrection is a revolutionary because it changes our trajectory. Hear that. Resurrection changes our direction from close-fisted to open-handed. And see, that is a new way to come to the world. Not close-fisted trying to grasp whatever we can and hold on for dear life and to keep out those who hurt us necessarily. Not trying to control everyone and control everything, but rather open-handed to God and the possibilities of God and the possibilities of empty tombs and death being defeated. And the place where we truly live with the living God and it reorders my posture, my posture towards myself, my posture towards those around me and my posture towards God. And yes, it changes our trajectory. That's what Paul said. He said to these philosophers, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And I know we think of that word repentance and right away it conjures up with us and sometimes rightfully so of of harsh judgment and Someone on a street corner with a black sign and red letters saying, repent or go to hell. But that's not really what Paul was talking about. He was talking about a change of trajectory. Because of the resurrection, it's the eternal that matters, that impacts the daily. 
He said we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. But we do make gold, silver, stone, human design and skill godlike. Because we should not do that, he says, this needs to give pause to our, us examining our lives, which in some ways is the cardinal sin in a world a frantic pace and incessant activity and constant striving for progress and performance. The sin in a world like that is stopping to look at my life and ask the question, and this is the question. What really is at the center of all of this? What's really at the center of all of this? And maybe that's why it's so very shocking and terrifying and alarming. And maybe that's why it's unpredictable and risky and reverses the ways of the world because it asks me this question, where do I need to turn to God more fully? Where do I need to change the trajectory of my relationship and my life with Him in my life? Because remember this. Remember where Paul is walking. Paul is walking in a worshiping world. This passage in Acts 17 is so much like 21st century Nashua and New England. So much. It's amazing to me. He's walking in a worshiping world like ours. It's a world that's filled with atheists and agnostics and believers alike and everything in between. All worshipers. Someone who would not claim... Christian faith was a man by the name of David Foster Wallace. Perhaps you're familiar with him. In a commencement exercise, Wallace said this. Here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. You see, that's truly what we need to know. Who or what am I actually worshiping? The text says, Paul said, you know, I, I see that in every way you're very religious. I'm walking around and I'm, and I'm seeing everything. And I'm looking at all of your objects of worship. I even found one that says, to the unknown God. What are my objects of worship? What are my objects of worship? The resurrection of Jesus names God in the center. It reorders what matters. It gives me the direction of worship. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And what that does is that pushes all the other gods out. And it changes the trajectory of a life. Which means that we have to come to grips with the gods that hide in the way we see the world. We see the world 
a certain way, and we're not even sure sometimes, we don't even know how that's impacting us, but if we're not intentional about seeing the world through the truth of the resurrection, we have to really guard who our gods are, because gods hide in our worldview. This is how John Calvin put it, the great reformer. I love the way he put it. The human mind is a perpetual factory for idols. If you can think it up, you can worship it. If you can think about it, you can worship it. Happiness, comfort, sex, money, material things, philosophical views, politics, religion, and even people. But as Will Willimon put it, the God whom Paul proclaims is not just another option for human devotion. The God who sent the Christ is a jealous deity without rivals, an exclusive lover who tolerates no competition. Whew. Holy moly. A little dangerous, isn't it? <laughs> He commands all people everywhere to repent, is what we read. But here's my question. All right. That sounds a little tough. A little tough on Mother's Day, maybe, huh? I don't know. There were some times when I thought my mother was a tough God to be reckoned with. But why is God such a jealous deity? Why? Answer that in your mind right now. Why is God one deity who will have no other rivals? Well, there's one word that answers that, and it's this. Opportunity. You see, here's some really good news. Imagine it like this. I've shared ideas like this before, but this week it just happened to be very fresh. I found myself dwelling, living in Genesis chapter 1. That's one of my all-time favorite places to just crawl into the Bible and just read the first chapter of Genesis. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Capture that in your mind. Picture that. Let that film in your mind take place, unfold. God hovering over the unknown. God hovering over the uncertain. God hovering over the unfulfilled. But then, because it is God who's hovering, God hovering over possibility. God hovering over potentiality. God hovering over opportunity. And then speaking into what looked like uncertain, unknown, and unfulfilled, he says, let there be light. Now imagine that same God. Imagine that same God hovering over your life and mine. Imagine him hovering, breathing over your situation, your circumstances, whatever they may be. Your worldview. Imagine him poised this moment to speak over your life. Let there 
be light. See, where is it that you need his life-giving light? Where do you need that? That is a reordering of our lives because the resurrection reorders the way the world works. Here it is. We are not left to our own devices, even though there's many days where I end up putting myself into the center and I start thinking about all the things I can't do, all the things I am not, all the things that feel like they're too much for me. But what I do is I end up moving him out of the center and I put myself into the center. Because we're actually not left to our own devices. Instead, as J.D. Waltz said this week, we are dealing with the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Wow. I love that passage. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. So what does that mean? Anyone here see the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks? Anyone? It's a great movie. It's an interesting movie. I don't know. I was just, I know none of you ever do this, but I was in a brain fog, and I think I was, I think I was watching a baseball game more than likely, and then all of a sudden that ended, and it ended beautifully for me at the moment, fortunately. And, um, and then I started channel surfing a little bit. I just, and I saw Castaway, and I flipped over to it, and I watched the last third of that movie. If you know this story about Castaway, it's a story about a plane that goes down, a FedEx flight, and and then this one man who gets stranded on an island for four years. They thought he was dead. They held, a, they held a funeral with a coffin for him. When he came back, he said, you had a coffin for me? What did you put in it? Right? And they put in little trinkets and all kinds of stuff. But he was now back. He had been rescued. He came back. But in this one poignant scene, maybe this is the most important part of the whole movie for me. He said this, I had power over nothing. And that's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket. Somehow, I had to keep breathing. Even though there was no reason to hope, even though logic dictated that I would never get home. But that's what I did. I kept breathing. And then one day my logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in and gave me a sail. And now here I am, I'm back home, and now I know what I have to do. I have to keep breathing. Because tomorrow, the sun will rise. And who knows what the tide could bring in. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I am offered a new worldview, the opportunity to see how the world really works, the opportunity to ask God by his creative spirit to breathe over life and death and circumstances and troubles and joys and failures and stressors and skills and hope and all of it, all of it, and ask him to show up in the midst of all of it because the sun did rise. And who knows what the tide of God's Spirit may bring into my life because the sun did rise. And that's the worldview of the resurrection. 
And Paul helped these skeptics see that the resurrection of Jesus brings a whole new way of looking at the world. He said that God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And that's God's intention, my friends, that we would never, ever be alone. Jesus himself says, and I will be with you day after day to the end of the age. And as Steve Machia said, this means he holds us tightly and he initiates love and grace and mercy and peace into our troubled hearts and our personal lives all the time, no exceptions, always and forever. Amen. Why? Why is that true? Because in him we live and move and have our being, which means the same God who hovered over creation, hovers over every life now because he's living God. And he's poised to create opportunity for new life in you and me and us and our circumstances and even in this broken world. And six words in the entire Bible make that true. He has risen from the dead. Is that how you see the world? Where God is not just another option for human devotion? Where there's never a moment when divine love is not at work? Easter people live in that world and they see the world through that lens. And the truth is, like that child's kaleidoscope, it is a world that is beautiful and colorful and it's filled with the wonder of God's opportunity. It's a reordered world. It's a reordered life. That doesn't mean that everything suddenly Is better. You know what resurrection means on Mother's Day? It means that pain is even more painful sometimes. Because love is even more deeper. It means we grieve for what we did not have, even as we celebrate what we do. It means as we look around in a world that's so unlike what God wants, what we want, that God is still making all things new. And he is inviting us into being part of that right now. Because in him, we live, we move, we breathe, we eat, we work, we play, We worship. In him we live, we move, we have our being. It's how the way the world is supposed to work. Our worship team is going to come. Would you stand with me, please? For a moment today, as they're getting ready to sing our last song, I would just invite you to just a point of quiet, 
a moment in silence. Maybe you're getting ready to go into a hectic day of getting together. Or maybe you're going to a place where you're going to be alone. But for this moment, just for a moment, just for a moment, ask God, as never before, to meet you in the center of your life as never before. Ask God to hover over your life. Listen for him. Listen, listen. Let there be light. Let there be. Where is it that you need that? You know, we got to put aside all of those other things that we have as objects of worship. Put them aside. Come on. Lay them down. As long as you hold them up, you're not going to see his opportunity. Lay them down. Those places where our pain is so great, those places where shame hides his face, the, those places where I keep putting myself in the center. But today, let me step out of the center and let me hear him say, let there be light. Because it's a reordered world. For a reordered life. Oh God, hover over us. Hover over our uncertainty, our fear. Hover over our pain and our grief. Hover over our accomplishments, our success. Hover over our failures and our longings. Hover over our upbringings and our history. And do what you want to do. Birth your possibility, your potential, your opportunity in us as we change this trajectory we repent we turn to the one the living one who says yes let there be light in the power of the name of Jesus